So it's Titus chapter 1, and we're reading verses 5 to 16. And it might even come on the screen, so you don't have to look up anything. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and, as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply, so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to be with you as we can... Let's see if we got this working. I feel like a tour guide with my, with my clicker. And you're on the wrong tour. Um, hey, there we go. There you go. I really do feel like a tour guide. Uh, we're continuing our, our series on the, the island of Crete. I mean, um, the book of Titus. Um, now, I've, I've checked the church calendar and... And TAC isn't appointing elders anytime soon. And so, so you might be wondering, why am I here listening to this? Why am I not up here on that beautiful boat? Um, I don't want to say where I'd rather be. Um, no, no, it's okay. But, but this passage is not just about elders. It has a lot to say about how we are to lead others by our faith and about who is leading us. Um, just about all of us, to varying degrees, are leaders in faith to people around us. Because there are people who are watching and listening to us. They're influenced by what we say and do. If you are a parent or an older sibling, then you have gospel leadership. If you lead at, at Tooney Kids, you have gospel leadership. If you follow Jesus, then you have been entrusted with the gospel to live it out and to teach it to others. And that is gospel leadership. 
And this passage, this passage shows us how we are to live as followers of Jesus who lead others. Now, maybe, maybe you consider yourself a new Christian or, or you're dealing with a lot at the moment. Um, but even so, all of us are, are under gospel leadership as well, both formal leadership at church and also in our relationships, in our day-to-day life. Um, and so I want us to see today... Oh, there you go. I think I was pressing the wrong button. I want us to see today that gospel leadership requires transformation founded on truth. Uh, we'll look at, first we'll look at the problem in Crete, and then we'll look at the solution of gospel leadership. Uh, we'll look at the dangers of deception, and then the questions for us today. Um, and those questions, sorry, are who is leading you? Who are you leading? And how are you leading? And I want us to think about that as we go through the passage. Who is leading you? Who are you leading? And how are you leading? Uh, but first, uh, the problem in Crete. So on the slide here uh, is the Palace of Knossos, uh, built on Crete by the Minoans in about 1700 BC. So it's very old and it's very big. Um, and it illustrates two important things about Crete. Uh, firstly, that, a- that households in ancient Crete were big and influential. They weren't just mom, dad, 2.4 kids and, and Nelly the dog. Um, no, a household would be parents, kids, cousins, grandkids, servants, the family business where they'd all work, or all, in, all in a big compound, sort of growing out from the head of the household at the centre, a bit like this, this spider web, all interconnected. And this could be 20 or 30 people, or in, in a Minoan palace, hundreds of people. Life in Crete is built on, on big households. Um, This palace also shows us that Crete is built on greed and lies. Now, this palace is a display of extraordinary wealth. Uh, We heard from Mike last week about the worship of Zeus, uh, the Greek god known for seduction and lies. Um, And in Greek mythology, this this palace is the place where King Minos uh, built the labyrinth for, for the Minotaur, this maze full of tricks and deception. Uh, But it's not just mythology that we, um, we hear that from Paul. We see in verse 12 that the Cretans are proud. They're proud of their lying and greed. One of their very own prophets said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So they desire more than they need, but they don't pursue it by hard work. Instead, they pursue it by lying and deceiving. And so when you see the large, wealthy, maze-like palace of Knossos, think about Crete as an island of large households, greed, and lies. And it's that kind of place where Paul has been, preaching the gospel. Now, Paul has had to leave, but, but Titus has stayed. He stayed to set right what was left undone. They've received the gospel, but there's still more to do. Believers in Crete are still living like the rest of the island, built on greed and lies. And they need to be set right by the gospel, by the truth that transforms. And so that's the problem in Crete. What is the solution? Uh, Paul loved to write. He wrote heaps of letters to churches instructing them. But, but if, we, if you go forward in your Bible, you don't find two Titus or three Titus or, or ten Titus. 
Um, now, that's not to say that they didn't need written teaching. Of course they did. They need, verse 1, the truth that transforms. Verse 9, they need the faithful message. Um, but they need people to teach it to them. And so what Paul requests alongside the Word of God is not just letters, but leaders. There was a little subtle change on the screen there. Um, not letters, but leaders. See, we are changed, sorry, we are saved into the body of Christ. People under God being equipped and used to love and serve one another. And leaders are part of that. Leaders are a visible example of following Christ. Leaders can relate with those around them. They can love and serve and encourage and rebuke. Now, there is disagreement between different types of churches about exactly how we structure church leadership. How many elders and, and presbyters and bishops and deacons? Um, we are not going to get into that today. But there's a couple of helpful definitions to note here. First, the word for elders in chapter 1, verse 5, is the same word that translates to older men in chapter 2, verse 1. And so it can refer to an official or unofficial leader, though it seems here Titus is being asked to appoint them, so probably officially. Uh, and these same elders are referred to in verse 7 as overseers. So they're seeing over God's household. They're managing God's household. Now remember, running a household in Crete was a big job. But how much more important is overseeing God's household? And so how do you choose who to appoint? Well, um, unfortunately, well, probably fortunately, they didn't have reality TV in ancient Crete. Um, but if they did, they might have had a show called Elder at First Sight. Um, so we're going we're gonna to try and find the ideal elder for our three Cretan households. And time to meet contestant number one, the Minoans, the oldest civilization in Crete. They built that beautiful palace up there. Um, all the young men in Minoan Crete went through military training, a bit like the Spartans. Um, but only the aristocrats can carry around their weapons in public. And at the Cretan gyms, only the aristocrats can exercise. And so if they're looking for a leader, they're probably looking for someone who is rich, who can fight well, from a noble family. They want a leader with power. Time to meet contestant number two, the Jewish circumcision party. Now, clearly, there's, there's groups of Jews living in Crete, and some of them are now part of the church in Crete. And they would say, to be an elder, you have to literally be elder, at least 60. They want someone Jewish who obeys the law of Moses. Now, that's, that's more than 600 laws, and so they need to know them really well so they can point out when others aren't keeping the law and be an example, be someone who's seen to be doing the right thing. That's the kind of elder the Jews were looking for. They want a leader with knowledge. And contestant number three is Paul. Now, surely Paul would also want someone knowledgeable and powerful, able to get things done. Surely he's someone who, who speaks well, has charisma, a bit of gravitas. Throw in valid first aid training and you've got the complete package. <laughs> now, thankfully, we don't have to speculate because we have Paul's list right here. Now, is it, is it an exhaustive list? 
I, I don't think so. Now, Paul has worked with Titus. He trusts his judgment. You know, Titus is the one doing the job interviews, talking about Sudokus and, and marine biology. Um, but this list is Paul's essentials, things he doesn't want Titus to ignore. These are Paul's non-negotiables to oversee the church, to oversee God's household. And they are totally different to what the world looks for. There's nothing on Paul's list about power and knowledge, ethnicity, wealth, speaking ability, IQ. No. What Paul requires is a heart transformed by the truth of the gospel. The Minoans valued power, the Jews valued knowledge, but Paul values godliness. And what does this godliness look like? Well, there are, there are two lists, and they both start with the word blameless, and that's sometimes translated above reproach. Uh, elsewhere, Paul uses this same word blameless when he writes to the Colossian church. He says, God has reconciled you, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. It's by faith in Jesus that we are seen as blameless before God. And that's not because of our actions. We can't be perfect in our actions. Only Jesus can. But Paul is looking for evidence of a leader that belongs to Jesus. A leader who is forgiven in Jesus, blameless in God's sight, and then being wholly transformed by God through the Holy Spirit. Again, to be blameless or wholly transformed is not perfect, but it is allowing God to rule over every part of your life. And that's why Paul gives such a long list or a comprehensive list. So that he says blameless, and then the lists that follow are evidence of being transformed. It's like me asking you, oh, can you find me a good movie? Something smart, funny, romantic, not too long and, and with some over-the-top stunts, you know? Anything on, anything on top of a speeding train would be fine. Um, so I'm telling you what I think a good movie looks like. And Paul here is saying, a leader should be blameless, and here is what that looks like. So the first list is of a leader whose life in the home is transformed by the truth of the gospel. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Now, I don't know if you've spotted the irony, but Paul himself is not married. And so clearly, he's not saying, you must be married, you must have children. Um, instead, we remember he's writing to Crete. He's writing to an island governed by greed and lies, an island of big households, where older men have a lot of power. And so you can imagine it's pretty easy and acceptable in ancient Crete to have multiple wives or to be unfaithful. But Paul instead wants leaders who follow Jesus, whose marriages are shaped by the truth of the gospel and not by the lies of the world around them. If, if elders have children, then Paul wants the children to be faithful. What does that mean, faithful? Well, we, we, we know already, we've got to hold that God is the one who saves and transforms. And we also know that being accused of wildness and rebellion, well, well that sounds a bit more like a court charge than a spiritual matter. And so, so holding those two things, I, I don't think that faithful means children who follow Jesus. 
That would be great, but ultimately that is up to God. Instead, I think it means children who are obedient to the head of their household. Paul is looking for leaders who teach and care for their children well, so that they can teach and care for the church, for God's household. Paul also wants leaders with integrity, whose private life, their life at home, is the same as their public life at church on Sunday. But I think there's a practical aspect too. Leaders have a responsibility to care for their family. And so if there are issues there, then they need time to address that before maybe adding the extra responsibility of caring for God's house. And so Paul is being loving towards families. Now the second list, the longer list, is of a leader whose life in the church is transformed by the truth of the gospel. Verse 7. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. And then here's what that looks like. Paul lists five must-nots, six musts, and only one action. Uh, But first up, five must-nots, instant red cards, okay, disqualified. Not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money. Someone who acted like this shouldn't be given authority or power over others because their actions don't seek the good of others. And it's worth examining our own lives to see where we fall short. Not, not if we fall short, but where. When you're driving in traffic or at the shops or, or trying to get kids in and out the door and into the car, are you being arrogant or hot-tempered? Temp- If you see the numbers in your bank account going up, how, how do you respond? Are you thinking about how you might use God's money to be a blessing to others? Or do you just kind of like looking at it and having it sit there? Are you greedy for money? You see, just like the church in Crete, there is a danger for us in listening to the lies of our world and in listening to our selfish hearts. When we do this, we are not caring for those around us and we are not honouring God. So how should leaders live instead? We've seen the must-nots, and here are the must-bes. Verse 8, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. Does it remind you a little bit of the fruits of the Spirit? Because it should. God wants leaders who are transformed by God's Spirit which is at work as we read the truth of God's word. How, how can we be holy or righteous by our own efforts? We can't. We can't. And so when we see this high, high standard of what leaders are called to, let's not despair. Instead, let's come before God in dependence. Let's depend on his sure forgiveness when we fall short. Let's depend on his word to teach us, on his spirit to transform us, so that we might be an example and a blessing to those around us. And verse 9 is the action, is the the pin that holds this list together. We've got, so far, we've got 11 qualities of a transformed leader. Well, five to avoid and and six to aspire to. But verse 9 is less of a quality and more of an action, holding. Holding to the faithful message as taught. And all of this so that 
a leader will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. See, when a leader's life and their teaching, their actions and their words are all under the authority of Jesus, then they help others to do the same by encouraging with the truth that transforms and by protecting against lies that deceive and destroy. In the next paragraph, we see why that is so vital, especially in Crete. There are people in the church who are not like the elders. Their teaching and life are not under the authority of Jesus, and it's destructive. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It's necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. These these people are not just mistaken or misguided. They are manipulators. They aren't there to serve the church, but to serve themselves. And their greed and lies are ruining entire households. Remember, think back to that palace. It's a lot of people. And reminds me of the time I got an email, a special email, from none other than the head of the United Nations. That's right, it said, it said Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Wow, lucky me. But, but as I began to read this email, something wasn't quite right. And it wasn't just the, the copious spelling mistakes. You see, they, they, the United Nations claimed to be giving out unclaimed lottery winnings. And then, and then at the end, they signed off with the slogan, United Nations, making the world a better place. And that, and that I looked it up, that's not their slogan. It wasn't right. See, that, this email, that the teaching and their actions, they weren't under the authority of the United Nations. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't sucked in, I, I just laughed. Um, but Australians lost $3 billion to scams last year. Now that is serious, and it's destructive. How much more destructive are those who distort the truth about Jesus? How destructive are those who twist and add to the gospel, claiming that Jesus is not enough, or that you need other experiences or works or blessings to be saved and satisfied? How destructive are those who claim to follow Jesus but selfishly abuse the people under their care. And so Paul tells Titus to sharply rebuke these false teachers, sharply rebuke, but it's not as punishment. No, Paul even wants these false teachers to be saved. He wants them to be sound in the faith, to listen to the true gospel so that they might be forgiven and transformed. So far, Paul has talked about two very different types of people, those who are blameless and those who are rebellious. And there's a lot of description of what those types of people do, what they look like. And this this is helpful. It helps us to appoint leaders who will love and serve God's people well and be aware of those who won't. It also shows us the parts of our life where we are not submitting to God's rule. But in verse 15 and 16, the next paragraph, we're reminded that all of these outward signs are only indicators of what is far more important, the state of our hearts. And again, there's two groups, pure 
or defiled. Purified by the blood of Jesus or defiled by sin. The language of defiled and detestable, it's, it's not nice, it's harsh. Um, but it's not designed primarily to offend us. It's designed to warn us. And it's designed to highlight God's grace. All of us at one time have had defiled hearts. By God's grace, not by our works, we've been forgiven and our hearts have been purified. And the way we live, our works, show the state of our hearts. And so I have a few questions to help us reflect on what we've heard. First question, who is leading you? We are so blessed to have the Bible taught clearly at TAC, um, and we have, so, like, we have clear access to the Bible. But in our lives, there are a lot of voices shouting and wanting to be heard. Are you being deceived by false teaching, by the lies of the world that contradict and twist the Bible? Or are you going to the Bible yourself? to be fed and transformed by the Spirit at work through the truth of the Gospel. Second question, who are you leading? Be aware that you influence the people around you, especially the people in your care. Take that responsibility seriously and ask for God's help. But also be thankful Be thankful that God uses us as a church family to teach and encourage and protect one another. Last question, how are you leading? We've we've seen from this passage that we don't just lead by what we teach, but how we live. And both of these things need to be built on the gospel under the authority of Jesus. And if they are not, then we are hypocrites. It's the worst kind of leader. Saying one thing and doing another, pointing out the speck in someone else's eye and not checking for the log in our own eye, telling people to follow Jesus when we are not following Jesus, when we are living for pleasure, following ourselves, claiming to know God but denying Him by our works. Gospel leadership requires transformation founded on truth. And I'm sure that all of us have parts of our life where we need God to work. And so let's finish by coming before him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, please forgive us for the times when we don't lead and love and serve well. For when we are arrogant and greedy and hypocritical, not hospitable or truthful, or holy or self-controlled. But we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus, through whom we are forgiven, through whom our hearts are no longer defiled, but made pure. We thank you for your Word and your Spirit given to us. Please transform us so that we would be a blessing to those around us in what we say and in what we do. We thank you for the blessing of our church family for the ways you use us to love and encourage and rebuke and teach one another. 
Help us to do this by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.